everybody. It's Rachel from School Psych Podcast. We are super happy to have Sheila back uh, tonight to kind of revisit that selective mutism discussion. If anybody hasn't seen that first episode, definitely recommend that you check it out. It was really great and really functional. I felt like after that episode that I could, you know, walk into a counseling session with uh, with that and kind of tackle it head on. So I, I felt really good out of that, about it. And I hope that you guys too. So definitely check that out. But as I said, my name is Rachel um, and I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca. Rebecca? Hi, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut, and I want to share with you how to participate. I know many of you are listening um, to the re recording on your commute, so if that's the case, happy. hope you have a happy work day, and I hope you enjoy the ride with us. We'd still love to hear from you, so if you're listening not live, please comment on either Facebook page, School Psyched, your school psychologist, or the School Psyched podcast page, both on Facebook. You can um, post to page and visitor posts or send us a message and um, private messages. Also on Twitter using the hashtag psyched podcast. We will, we will be looking out for you. And if you're watching us live, welcome. You can comment right along the YouTube video that you're watching. You just have to sign into your Google account. And also you can also comment on the Facebook pages and Twitter. I'll be looking for notifications. And now here's Eric. Hi everybody. I'm Eric and I'm a school psychologist also in Connecticut. And we are excited to have Sheila Lepkin back here with us again, talking about selective mutism. And uh, just before we get started, I will introduce Sheila and share a little of her bio uh, from her amazing career. Um, Sheila has been a master's level nationally certified school psychologist for over 30 years. She's worked in public school districts in North Carolina, Maryland, Virginia, and Colorado. Her final 11 years were in, spent in Cherry Creek School District in suburban Denver. She also holds a certificate in marriage and family therapy from the Denver Family Institute. And during her career in the public schools, Sheila was co-chair of the ADHD task force for the Cherry Creek School District and taught a summer class for ADHD students. Uh, she created and taught a summer class for ADHD students. Sheila retired to private practice to help children with anxiety disorders and those with ADHD uh, with family school systems approach. With Anxiety Solutions of Denver, she created a summer intensive camp for children with selective mutism called Courageous Kids Camp. And she recently retired from private practice and remains the Colorado coordinator for the Selective Mutism Association. So welcome back, Sheila. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, I've learned a lot from the families that I've worked with, and I've learned a lot sitting in IEP meetings and learning really from the school folks that I worked with to help kids. And so I wanted to come back and share what I've learned and also revise all my documents because, you know, a few years go by and all of a sudden your URL is no longer working. And so you have to redo that. And I also made a couple of videos to help people who are working with kids with selective mutism. And I wanted to get that information out there too. So um, I thought I would start simply with a good definition of selective mutism. And I'm taking this from one of my sheets, number two, Mythbusters, which will be on, is currently on the Google Drive for other school sites to look at. Um, selective mutism is a childhood disorder typified by an inability to speak in certain circumstances. Specifically, it is a consistent failure 
to speak in certain social situations where there is a natural expectation of speaking. So I thought that I might begin with some of the questions that people have asked me sort of over and over about selective mutism. And um, so the first one is, I don't know if this kid is shy or has selective mutism. What's the difference? Where's the dividing line? So the question is, so the answer is like so many things in school psychology, there's no dividing line. There's a continuum. So you have the kids who really might qualify as just being shy. Then it passes over from shyness to the point that no matter how comfortable you make this kid feel and no matter how much you take the pressure off of talking, they're still not talking. Or they're doing strange things like whispering or making noises in class. Or you can, they can eke out a yes or a no, or they've turned into mimes and they're like doing everything like this in class. And then you know you've crossed over into some form of selective mutism. And then you have more moderate cases where the child might be saying a few things to a few people, but you can't, you get stuck there. And you can't move out of the fact that, well, he's talking to the TA in class and nobody else. or He'll talk to every peer in school, but no adult. So you can be anywhere along that continuum. And when you take all those kids into account, you're probably talking about 1% of the population of kids in your school. So you can be pretty sure that you're going to see it probably maybe as much as once a year in your school. And uh, I see a question. Is there a certain age it is considered selective mutism? No, there's no magic age. I have seen kids identified as early as two years old, but it's sort of like ADHD in that the younger the child is identified, chances are the more severe the selective mutism is. But it's often get, gets passed off as shyness for quite a while. And late identification is a killer because our current research tells us that it is more easily remediable in the preschool years than once you leave kindergarten. So let me move on to another question. How can you assess a child who does not talk to you? And this is a new document that I created, uh, number two, assessment in the Google Drive. The first thing that's really important to do is to ask the parents to get you a language sample from home. These kids are so inhibited and so anxious in the school setting generally that you really have no idea how freely and wonderfully these kids talk until you hear a sample from home. So what I ask parents to do is to, I'm afraid sometimes it has to be done secretly because their anxiety is too high but to get an audio recording or a video recording of them chatting with siblings or their parents. I discourage having them read or recite something that they have memorized because that's not their natural speech. And it is really good to see these kids interacting with siblings or peers because these kids can look so frozen 
in the public school and so inhibited that it is hard to distinguish them from kids on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. And so if you can get that more uninhibited behavior at home, that's a really good thing. So let's see here. What does an IEP look like? And should these kiddos have IEPs? The, the answer to that is, oh, I'm not sure I answered the assessment completely. Let me go back to that. So the language sample is most important because in that language sample can be analyzed by your speech and language person uh, for syntax and for length of utterance and for all and for inflection and all these other things. And about 50 to 75% of kids with selective mutism also have a speech and language disorder. That becomes the trigger for the panic attack. So it's real important to identify that. Then on top of that, you can do scales to measure anxiety. You can use whatever your school district likes best of all for anxiety. The BASC-3 has a subscale in it for anxiety, which is nice. Um, there's a free one online called Scared. I think I make reference to that in my document. And of course, there's all sorts of other ones that you can, can go to. And then just be sure when you're evaluating a child in the school and you want to do some standardized testing, of course, you can do all your nonverbal pointing things, you know, any nonverbal test. Um, I think the taps can be done nonverbally if you go with a yes, no sort of thing. So tr get creative about gathering your data uh, when you have the child in your office. Because even if they are willing to answer you with a one-word response, you will not get the scores that their parents could get giving the same assessment. And there's a study showing that in case you need to justify that in your reports. But in general, say that in your report, it's always good to say inhibition. Um, behavioral inhibition or social inhibition may adversely affect the scores that you've gotten. So I think that covers assessment. Can you you guys have any other questions there about assessment, or should I move on to IEPs and 504s? I have a question, but I, I'm not sure it's exactly about assessment. But I, uh, it, while you were speaking, it made me think of um, as you were mentioning that some kiddos will make sounds um, but not use um, regular speech or words. Is that if if a child is um, demonstrating in some way the desire to communicate, is that something that um, you look to encourage? So if, he's, if the child's making, you know, funny sounds or, or laughing out loud, um, is, is that an inroad to at least having a connection with the student? Yes, very definitely. Every sound or syllable or laugh that that child makes, you need to repeat out loud. It gives them the feeling that what they say is important, that they don't need to be afraid of having their voice heard. It's the first step. And it's part of what's often called in parent-child interaction therapy, child-directed interaction. So CDI, 
I call it sports casting because you're literally describing and repeating everything the child is doing. Along with that, you provide a little reward system, but don't draw a lot of attention to it. That's too much pressure. Simply put that sticker down or put that check mark down for the older child. But yeah, that's step one. If you can get noises out of that kiddo, that is a great place to start. Sometimes you can bring out the animal puppets and get some sounds as they become the animal puppet. Often they put it in front of their faces and and start that way. Um, any way you start it, get as creative as you need to to get those first sounds out. I actually know someone, and I don't recommend this, but they accidentally stepped on the child's toe and they said, ouch. <laughs> that was their sound but but it grew from there it grew from there i don't recommend that yeah. <laughs> yeah. um okay any other questions before i go on to ieps and 504s i don't see anything okay doke so what does an iep look like first of all i recommend ieps because accommodations alone won't handle this problem. Accommodation means that you give a child nonverbal ways to communicate. And you certainly do need to do that in the beginning for safety reasons. You have to give that child a way nonverbally to say, I'm sick, I have to go to the bathroom, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. You have to get all those sorted out at the beginning. But if you take that too far, then it's an early rescue and not allowing them and pushing them and urging them. Or what Dr. Stephen Kurtz, who founded the protocol, says being lovingly relentless in your pursuit of getting some vocalizing done. So accommodations alone, which are pretty much the majority of 504 plans are not enough. You really need to have an IEP to specify a key worker who's going to do the work of the systematic desensitization. The first step, which you just described, we just described together, the CDI, to get that started with the child. So on document number five, Common Core Standards, the basis of any IEP is does the child need help in some educational standard that has been set? And the answer is yes. It's under communication and language generally. You are required to talk to adults and talk to peers in a variety of settings. And it starts in kindergarten. So it's not as though you have to wait past kindergarten to give these kiddos IEPs. They can get it right then. And that's a good point because I can see a lot of people saying, like, say the kid has good grades, you know, because there's already maybe accommodations being made. I can see people saying, oh, but they have good grades. There's no impact on education. But of, of course, you know, education and educational performance as defined by the, the federal government is more than just grades. It's, you know, your socialization and all your interactions. And obviously communication is a huge part of that. So that that's an educational impact. <laughs> right, right. And the federal law is very clear on you have to consider behavior. It's not just all about the academic grade a child is achieving. Mm -hmm. So very definitely. So the other thing is, so who should be the providers in an IEP? Generally, I found it worked best if you're in a school 
with both a school psychologist and either a counselor or a speech therapist that you share the same goal and you work on the same things and you share a Google Doc that you kind of pass back and forth. Oh, this is what I did this week. The main information you have to transfer back and forth is where were you when you got this, got the, you were working with the child? What was the task you were asking the child to do? And what was the child's response? That helps multiple providers stay on the same page because part of this loving, relentless work is to keep on doing the same thing over and over again. You have to keep on exposing the child, exposing the child until you reach habituation, as you do in phobias, and the panic subsides, and then the child can comfortably do that task. And then you move on to the next task, the next little baby step, if that makes sense. Okay. I have a question. Um, is there any instances where, like, the selective mutism, um, you know, kind of resolves and things are good through therapy and whatnot? Um, is there a risk of sliding back and um, kind of regressing, you know, years later or, even, or, you know, following summer break and things like that? You can pretty much expect regression after every break. Uh, it's really important to teach the parents to do these techniques so that they can work on them over breaks. You can't take a rest when it comes to working on selective mutism because doing nothing means that the child is not responding to someone, which is very reinforcing toward not responding the next time. Mm -hmm. So the parents and everyone really has to know what to do if the child goes silent on you. And we can talk about that. So pretty much you can expect regression after every break. Even if the child is pretty far along in their treatment, let's say the child is now responding to the teacher a little less to peers, but gets a reliable response from the teacher whenever she asks a short answer question. The child comes back into school. They're anticipating their tough environment. And the first question that asked, you may want to go back to some of the easier stuff, okay? Don't expect to pick up where you left off. Go back a few steps. You may only have to go back a few steps for five minutes, or it could be five hours, or it could be five days. But the child will regain what they have lost if you're very deliberate in providing the steps and doing the therapy, they'll come back from it quicker. And each time they come back from a break and regain skills, they'll get braver and braver and know that, yeah, just like last break, I'll eventually get back to where I was. This sounds like a case of ESY type services that might be appropriate in some instances if you're seeing that regression after the break, the extended school year um, on the IEP, right? It is a it is a hard uh, a hard thing to get in most school districts. ESY um, the, each school district has their 
uh, own rules about ESY, like if you recover within three weeks, you don't get ESY. And these are kids who might recover in three weeks. So consult your local school district. Gotcha. I totally agree with that. I've worked in a district that seems like everybody gets ESY, and I've worked in one that like nobody in the whole district gets it because they're just afraid of it for some reason. And I would also I think like the district that I'm in now, um, we do ASY pretty frequently, uh, but it's not necessarily going to be the same people that you're working with and not even the same location of school. So they might have ESY, you know, at a kind of combine everybody together. So that would mean that the child is going to a totally new school with new staff and a new therapist. And I'm kind of like, hmm, that maybe wouldn't work so well in this situation. So probably you have to make it. It doesn't. And, and that has been a concern when I talk about ESY with school districts. The point is you do have to train that person. You have to train that person to do it right and not spoil the work that's been going on. Wow. If, if IEP. <laughs> if the child is uh, responding consistently to one person, maybe the classroom teacher, um, and then has to transition into a new school year into a new teacher, how, is it very common that that a lot there's a lot of regression because of a new person? And the other question that I have around that is. Um, I know you and I have spoken about Dr. Kurtz and the Child Mind Institute and their work um, in selective mutism, but then there's also Communicamp and the Smart Center, which is uh, near Philadelphia, I believe, but that has a slightly different um, approach. And they talk about whisper buddies. And do both schools of thought encourage whisper buddies? Because in Communicamp, in Communicamp, as I understand it, a whisper buddy is encouraged. It might be a peer or the teacher, and it's sort of a, an intermediary step before before you know fully responding in the whole group to everyone. I love the use of intermediaries. Let me go back to the beginning of the school year first. Okay. So at the beginning of the school year, uh, and this should be written into the IEP, there should be a slide-in with the teacher in her empty classroom during work week. Now, obviously, you're asking a teacher to do something outside her planned time to work with students, so you are relying upon the good nature of this teacher, uh, and most are very willing to do it when they realize how important it is to getting this kiddo to talk in class. The, um, the slide-in procedure is in a video, and it's the same for, it's the same thing every time. It's not different. You don't go to the next step until the child is reliably doing the step before. And, um, that's important to do at the beginning of every school year, even for kids who like had a pretty good year last year, because the anticipatory anxiety of a new classroom and a new teacher can be overwhelming for these kids. And to be able to do that slide in that they did last year, knowing they did well with it, just gives them such a bravery boost mm -hmm. and really sets them on the path to do well for the year. So that's the beginning of the school year. And the other question was about about encouraging a step before communication, a whisper buddy. Um, I am not that familiar with Communicamp, 
and I know that they get some very good results. So I'm not concerned if a parent goes to one place or another. They all know what they're doing. Uh, and I think it's a variation on the theme. The theme is, is that you can use somebody the child is willing to whisper to, to act as an intermediary, to be the bridge to talking to a different person. And that's also described on the slide and video. Uh, I break in with a narrative said, this is using an intermediary. So that take a good look at that. And I think that's about the same as they do. My concern about using a child as the intermediary is they're much harder to train than an adult. <laughs> and you can have a friend that is so invested in helping their little buddy that they don't understand the need to pull away from doing that when the time has come to do it. So what is that time when it comes? It's when the child whispers loud enough to their buddy that the teacher can hear and repeat what the child with SM is whispering. That's how you pass the baton of talking to a new person. So, uh, uh, Dr. Shippon Bloom calls it whisper buddy, and Dr. Stephen Kurtz calls it passing the baton of talking. But I think the term intermediary came from Dr. Shippon Bloom first. Uh -huh. Interesting. Just, go ahead. I just want to mention also um, for anybody really interested, um, Dr. Kurtz has a Facebook page and it's called Kurtz Psychology Consulting PC. And I noticed that he sometimes has um, Facebook lives and videos with some good suggestions and he even takes questions. So just wanted to mention that. His videos are awesome. In addition at his site, if you register your email, he walks you through learning the techniques using good examples and bad examples and a little quiz. And it's a really nice way to kind of learn the skills long distance. Thank you, Dr. Kurtz. Yeah, very cool. I was having a thought uh, as you were talking about the whisper buddy. Um, although I've not done that with a selective mutism case, I have had uh, cases with anxiety where a peer ends up, you know, kind of helping and, um, you know, being involved to with some stuff. And I've seen it kind of get out of control, yeah, where there's like too much reliance and even beyond the peer, like helping too much, but that peer getting burnt out and just right. tired and just being too much on them. So I'm thinking that's a case where if we're going to use a whisper buddy, we're clearing it with parents and making sure that what the limits are and things like that, just because, you know, some kids that can be a little bit much if they're the person that they're constantly going to, that's kind of asking a lot for a child, for another child, I feel. Not only that, but the child with selective mutism can get to the point that they just drag this kiddo around everywhere on the playground with them. I've seen that happen on occasion. And of course, we never want another child to be, it become a ventriloquist for this child. Okay, let's see. I can't get the parent to come in for the slide in like they show on the video. What can I do without the parent around? Well, it may take longer, but you get them in your office and you start with getting them non-verbally comfortable with you. 
And uh, sometimes games are involved. Ask the parent what the child's favorite game is and get playing that. And silly is good and funny is good because it's hard to be anxious when you're laughing. So you get the child very involved with the game and acting a little silly and then they make a little noise and you're on your way and you start from there. It's also useful to talk to the parents to see what might make a good reward because sometimes, and this happens at sometimes a very young age, stickers just don't cut it. And so you need to work with the parent that they're providing a reward at home that the child is slowly earning with you with check marks. That sort of thing is useful. Uh, I'm sorry to keep, I've got so many. <laughs> uh, then I will stop, including mine. Go to you. <laughs> you said, you know, with the noises that you want to repeat any verbalizations and whatnot. I'm just thinking about, you know, the kid makes like a snorting noise or something. Are you really repeating that? Could that be yes. a bit embarrassing? Yeah. <laughs> or awkward? <laughs> okay. You have to understand. Yeah, you're going to feel awkward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you have to do it anyway. Because these kids have to realize that they are deathly afraid of anyone hearing them. You simply have to make the noise and show them, hey, I'm brave too. I can make that noise too. I can make any noise you can make. So um, all that is good. Snorts, laughs, hee hees, um, maybe a burp. Um, <laughs> so um, sniffing in. Any noise, drumming your fingers, any noise, you have to repeat it. Yeah, and it, if it's fun, especially for the younger kids, if it's silly and fun, um, it can be such a sort of game-like way to just make a connection with a, a child. And if you can be sillier and make the child laugh, just having the child drop his guard in for a little bit and, and feel you know, connected to you is so powerful. Um, we have a question from a viewer who works in a preschool, and she is wondering if there's a way to do early identification without needlessly pathologizing, which I think may mean if you're, if you're not sure of a preschool child, if you want to go straight to the, you know, to an IEP, um, is there something else that you would do for a younger kiddo to to buy some time. Yeah, I go straight and start using the techniques. Yeah. Start repeating what the child says. Try some forced choice questions. Back off of the forced choice questions if you do not get an answer. Go back into your CDI and just CDI and sportscast like crazy. Yeah, it's a little odd, but um, I don't think you necessarily need to... Uh, do anything except inform the parent that this technique works well. And in fact, a forced choice question is an excellent way to build vocabulary for your second language learners, for any speech and language delayed kid, kiddos you have. I mean, to be able to say, is, is this a pencil or a pen or something else? You've just given them two vocabulary words. And you have embedded the answer in the question, which makes it easy for them. So, yeah, you can start there. That's great. You can also start by having the mom come in before school and say, I just want to get, I just want to have your child get used to talking in school. So could you come in and play with your child in the classroom before school starts? 
you don't have to say, I suspect this is selective mutism. No, you're just trying to get a, a, a reticent child to do some talking in school. Another question? Oops, not yet. Okay. Okay. The child will give a one-word answer to a forced choice question, but I can't get beyond that. How do we get unstuck? Well, there are a couple different things to do, and there's no one right way to do it. Start with a very easy one-word answer. So instead of saying, is this a pen or a pencil, say, what color is this pen? And then wait five seconds for an answer. They give you no answer. You say it one more time. So I'm wondering, not quite sure, like, what color is this pen? It will be the longest five seconds of your life. Are you purposely not making eye contact in case the kiddo, like, points? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you never stare at a child waiting for them to answer. It's a very bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really provokes anxiety. Yeah. So they might whisper the answer and then you say, oh, black, thanks for letting me know. And you give the sticker. So if after two tries they don't answer you, drop back into forced choice questions. They're not ready and you've gotten too greedy. <laughs> so you just have to have a lot of patience and a lot of repetition to get kiddos out of that. So what skills should I be teaching the parents? Um, how do I help them not reinforce the phobia? Because I'm doing all these great things in school and then they go home and who knows what's happening there. Education is really important for parents. They really have to become this kiddo's therapist when you're not around. You can't have them answering for their child anymore. You have to teach them the intermediary technique. They have to become their child's whisper buddy in public so that when you go to the grocery store and the cashier says, oh, you're so cute, how old are you? And the child fails to answer, the mom has to say, just a minute, we're going to get an answer to that. And the parent has to step back and ask the child, are you four or 23? Funny, funny questions are best, and they whisper, four. Then you both walk back together to the cashier, and the mom says, she says she's four. Okay, that way you don't let the child get away with the total shutdown or the ignoring of people who are asking questions. That's the first step I'll use an intermediary. That's really important skill for parents to have. And you guys are well-placed to teach that. I like the absurdity, the, the use of humor. You know, uh, you could do that with so many things. Is this a pen or a car? You know, uh, um, mm -hmm. what color is this house? <laughs> Kids are always asked, what's your name? And so an intermediary can say, so is your name Sarah or Penelope Poodle? You know, just yeah, yeah, that's great. And the kid laughs and goes, Sarah, and then you're good. Then you've gotten an answer. Um, let's see here. A substitute teacher came in and accused the child with selective mutism of being rude, and they did not speak to the sub. Now the child has stopped talking. What do we do? 
Well, the first thing you do is I want everyone to know in advance, please, in your sub plans for this child, uh, you can use the document that says number seven before first training. Turn that into a document for the sub, which essentially says this child has selective mutism. Uh, she will not speak to people she doesn't know. Since you're only there for a short time, do not ask her any questions. She is not being rude. She is extremely fearful. If you do hear her talk, repeat what she says and say thanks for letting me know and move on. Don't make a big deal about it. That's pretty much what document seven says. And document seven is a good uh, document to give to all adults who might interact with this child from the beginning of the school year on, and that can be written into accommodations also. Is it, is it common that once a child does start speaking, it's usually in one very specific either situation or to one person? And if that's the case, if the child is speaking only to one person but interacts with many, many adults, um, but interacts non-verbally, how do we, for example, you know, the art teacher or the PE teacher, how do we, um, do we ask the PE teacher and the art teacher to try to ignore the nonverbals and do the forced choice as well? Not right off. You okay. pretty much have to do a sliding with every new person. This does not generalize easily from place to place or person to person or activity to activity. So the rule of thumb is, change the person, change the place, change the activity, but only one at a time. So you could invite the art teacher to your office to play a game that this child has played successfully with you and spoken during the game. Okay, so bring the teacher into the game or you can take your game and that child and go into the empty art room and hang out with the art teacher in there. And sometimes it only takes 20 minutes to get the talking started. And then everywhere this child goes, that contract of check marks or stickers should go with them so they know that everywhere in the school they can earn stickers for pushing themselves to talk. It's uncomfortable work and you need to sweeten the deal for these kids. Gotcha. Okay. A private therapist is asking to come in and observe a child and offer suggestions. My school district will not allow this. What can we do? Well, I don't know many school districts at all that will allow a private therapist to actually come in and work with the child in the school. Uh, the feeling is that you're violating the privacy of all the other students and they're not signed off on any, you know, HIPAA rulings or so forth. So the best way to use an outside professional is either to let them work with the child before and after school when there are no kids around or to let them train the staff. And um, so if a parent comes in and says, my child has selective mutism and I'm working with a specialist, don't be put off by that. That specialist can be can provide some really fine training to you, and often parents are very happy to pay for that time. Okay, I think this child may have high-functioning autism. How can you tell when the child isn't talking? Is it possible to have both? 
Well, it's possible for a child to have multiple disabilities and any disability that has a higher rate of anxiety, like high functioning autism, probably also has a higher rate of selective mutism. So it is possible to have both. Sometimes it's really hard to tell, especially before the child's talking. Again, your uh, your speed, your uh, video that has been obtained from home environment where the kids are comfortable is a good thing to use. Any other questions or should I keep moving on? Move on. Okay. Um, the child will answer any question, but never raise their hand to ask. You will never talk to anyone first. What do we do now, if anything? Because they're answering the te teacher's questions. Everyone is very happy, but they're not initiating. That's probably mild selective mutism, and it's often passed off as shyness. But think about it. This child cannot raise their hand and say, I don't understand. They can't go up to a teacher and say, so-and-so is bullying me on the playground. It's a real problem for a child not to be able to talk first. And I think it's an educationally relevant problem. And it has to be worked on. So you provide, do a lot of role playing in your office, then say, uh, we're going to work on you. Asking in the front office, say you're going to say your name, I'm Johnny. Do you have a message for me or a message for my teacher? Let's practice this. You role play it there. Then you walk to the office with warning, give the office warning that you're coming and what to do. And they have to ask there. Again, it's sheer number of asking, asking. Go out into the hallway, say hello to five people. Saying hello, goodbye, please, and thank you are the hardest things for a child to initiate. And they have to be deliberately practiced first with e in your office with easier people, then out in public, in the hallways, in the gym, in before and after care. It has to be practiced. Um, let's see. I'm looking at our time here. So one more question here. This child talks to all adults pretty well, though the answers are short, but she will still not talk to peers in school. Is this an educational problem? And the answer is, well, yeah, for the amount of time that we spend doing group work, especially in the upper grades, not talking to a peer. I mean, how is this kiddo going to, like, get asked out to the prom, ask somebody out to a dance? Um, how are they going to work in groups? How are they going to stand in the front of the class and ever do a presentation? So that needs to be deliberately worked on step by step, building a hierarchy of easier skills and then getting harder and harder, changing only one thing at a time. So let's say the child is preparing for a whole class uh, presentation. At first, they give the presentation to the school psych in their office. And then you say to the child, who in your class would you like to invite into my office to listen to the presentation? They invite a few kids in and do the presentation. Then it's time to go to the classroom. Let's get, your, get, get into your empty classroom, invite a few more friends in. Let's get your teacher there. Often, there is not time to go through all these multiple steps, and you have to streamline it. So I've had teachers say, 
Sorry, Sheila, we didn't have time to do the steps, but I took out the child with SM into the hallway with a couple of her friends. She gave the presentation there. She's never done it before. I think that's real progress, and I'm giving her four points. And then you've successfully achieved a step on the way to a full presentation, and that's good too. Yeah. So, go ahead. When you when you get that far, Sheila, and a, a child is is really speaking with at least with you, um, selective mutism is you know a, a, um, a diagnosis in itself. But it because it's an anxiety disorder. Once you treated that symptom, the phobia of speaking, you still need to do something for the child for the for the anxiety. Correct? That that anxiety doesn't disappear because the phobia is gone? Yes and no. <clears throat> Depends on the child. Some kids only have the phobia of the fear of talking. And once they get over that, they're kind of the life of the party. Oh, wow. Other kids have social anxiety in general. And the way you can tell the difference of these kids is that ask their parents, do they do any performing like ballet or a musical instrument or somewhere where there's lots of people staring at them and they're doing something, but they're not talking. And if they love to do that, if they love to be the center of the party, as long as they don't have to talk, maybe you're just working on the phobia of selective mutism and that they'll be okay after that. However, the caveat is that often these kids aren't caught until later in their education, and they inevitably will develop social anxiety and social avoidance of all social situations in their desire to anticipate any situation that might require them to talk. So they become socially anxious in general. And then these kids are more prone to multiple phobias. So, you know, once you're afraid of talking and you are afraid of dogs and you are afraid of being without your parent, pretty soon you have a generalized anxiety disorder. You and I were once discussing also um, the way there are lots of invisible rules around when I can speak and when I can't speak or where or with whom. Have you noticed that some kids with selective mutism have OCD as well? Some do. Um, the phrase is contamination. Mm -hmm. So once a child fails to talk in a particular setting, it makes it more likely they will continue to fail to talk. And once that happens a lot, they develop a rule in their heads. I don't talk here or I talk here. But if my mom walks up, I stop talking. Or I will talk to these peers, but if the teacher walks up, I stop talking. And those rules make it easier for them to function in school. Just like the person who's afraid of flying says, I don't really like plane flight. I prefer trains. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just take a train everywhere I want to go. There's no reason to go overseas that I know of. So they rationalize sure. how they have to narrow their lives in order to avoid panicked feelings it's so it seems so similar to just that just right feeling just right thinking and um you know uh having ritualized rules and mm -hmm. it has that same flavor i uh i haven't seen any studies with ocd rates 
Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if it were higher. Interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. I'm sure people out there are saying, how can I get really good at this? Well, one way to get really good at this, other than going to Dr. Kurtz's website and practice makes progress, as we all know. So it's in the doing of it that you will get better. But in addition, you could serve as a counselor in one of the intensive camps that are all over the nation, including out here in Denver, Courageous Kids Camp. But in addition, there are camps in lots of different places. So you could contact one of these camps, and many of them are listed on the Selective Mutism Association website under events. And in return for being their counselor for free for their three or five day intensives, you will get supervised training by a PsyD that you can use toward recertification or licensure. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty good deal because like say in Greatest Kids Camp, you could get 30 hours uh, in a weekend of working there. And plus you would get really good at this because it's one-on-one -on -one therapy with the child and you're literally asking them questions every 30 seconds for three days. It's equal parts fun and exhausting. That's a great tip. I like that a lot. Awesome. I had one other little question. I think we talked a little bit last time maybe about, um, you know, when we're looking at IEPs, um, what category and whatnot. And I think you said um, that ED is a popular category for selective mutism. Correct me if I'm Well, actually, OHI is the most popular. Okay. I wasn't sure. Yeah, because my question was going to be, um, I know that some of us have some hesitancy, especially with the really young ones and putting that label because, you know, the, and there was some discussion on uh, on Facebook rather recently, too, about these labels and, of course, maybe long term, you know, impacting military or, you know, that type of thing. Um, if having that in the file. So I know that a lot of us are hesitant with the ED label and with any label, really. Um, well, it's a risk versus gain formula, as it always is. Um, preschoolers often get DD, developmentally delayed. That's kind of the catch-all, grab-all. And in some states, you can use that up to eight years old. Um, other And parents, of course, are not thrilled about the ED label. A lot of these kids get other health impaired, and um, which isn't inappropriate because the basis of this disorder is an amygdala that is somehow not functioning and sending out false alarms. So and a lot of these kids, especially if they fail to respond to treatment and as they get older, sometimes end up on SSRIs to bring their panic and discomfort low enough to profit from therapy. So uh, just like ADHD kids end up, OHI, it's not inappropriate to go OHI, and it certainly is an easier thing for the parents to handle. And sometimes they get uh, speech and language because it is a pragmatic language disorder. It's very much interferes with social communication. There is a questionnaire called the Selective Mutism Questionnaire, and that's also in the documents. And although it is not 
strictly standardized really well. It is considered a screening instrument and provides you with that good data that you can use pre and post or to justify uh, your category. So you may have mentioned, oops, hearing my own you may have mentioned this before, but uh, do, can a child be older and develop selective mutism, or does it have to be present for, by from a certain age? Sometimes people don't notice it until the kids get older. Oh. But once parents learn what it is, they say, man, she was always socially inhibited and hardly talking to many people at all, but she was in preschool with eight kids and the same teacher for three years, and we never noticed it, or we didn't know, really notice it. It didn't get really bad until we changed, till we moved. So um, it can be triggered by later events, and I'm not saying that trauma can't be a triggering event, but all these kids were very socially inhibited from it from birth if the kids go back, if the parents can go back far enough. Interesting. So interesting. It's such a, a great population of kids that that need our support. And we're so grateful for your expertise and your support for us. Thank you so much, Sheila. You're yeah. very welcome. And I want you guys to know I am happy to answer questions from our listeners, all they have to do is email me. Um, I have some time to do this now that I'm retired. I would be happy to share more information at any time. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I, I definitely love um, on social media, kind of and some of the Facebook groups, like when questions like this come up, just tagging you and you jump right in and answer questions and give resources. So it's like, yay. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> um, I'm looking for, I think we have some last minute kind of chatting going on. Um, and so anybody uh, get your comments and now we're going to be looking for those in just a second. Um, I wanted to remind people, I think we're scheduled to be back on January 20th and we're going to be talking about legally defensible psychoed reports. Um, and I'm hoping that because she has not emailed me back to confirm, but we have set, set the date and I'm going to be on her. So um, <laughs> we're, that's what we're going for right now on the 20th. So that'll be a really exciting one. And then I also wanted to quickly mention um, our little shirts that we've got. Um, <laughs> and thank you for Eric for that. Eric, do you want to tell us the story behind the shirts real quick? <laughs> sure, sure. So, um, and mine is upstairs somewhere in the house. So <laughs> I, 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 apologize. Uh, um, so my, we, we did our song, you know, we did our, our funny little intro video at the beginning of the year um, that included the friends um, school psych with a little friends theme. And uh, my practicum student this year, um, they do a little t-shirt for spa week oftentimes. So when they did their spa t-shirts, they had this little friends school psych friends theme uh, on their their t-shirts so it was really cute and I thought um, a nice little uh, touching uh, testament to our our funny song as well so um, so our Southern Connecticut State University school psych cohort did the shirts and uh, and made them uh, available as well to um, 
supervisors to uh, chip in and, and get some as well. So that's great. We love our shirts. I love them. <laughs> I'll wear mine as well. We'll coordinate again. So <laughs> yeah. for those of you who are going to NASP in February, look for us, Black and White. <laughs> Very cool. Um, okay, questions. We had a, a last a couple of questions. Um, one was, when should parents seek out pharmaceutical intervention? At what age? Um, and then the other one, it was, what if ch the ch child is only talking to students but not teachers? Um, any quick thoughts on those two questions, Sheila? Yes. So quick answer is there's no magic age to start medication. Generally, it's like ADHD. The more severe it is, the more you want to intervene right away because untreated days are not neutral, as Dr. Kurtz says. They are making the phobia worse. Yeah. And the other question about, well, yeah, it's a problem if you're not talking to your teachers. And, yes, you need to, to intervene. A lot of these kids will stop talking even to their peers if there's a teacher just hanging out. Huh. So it it is a real it, – it has more global effect than you think about. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. and so glad to get those updates. And yes. My pleasure. Thank you All so right. much. Good night, everybody. Somebody asked about um, the links for the camps um, and email addresses and whatnot and, and, um, and your email address, Sheila. So we'll be sure to get some of that posted um, on the comments or on the description section of the YouTube video just as soon as we can. That's great. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night and happy Monday in January tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>